Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is part two of a conversation with Dr. Deborah Saxon on women in early Christianity. Dr. Saxon is a professor at Butler University and a specialist on the texts that have been suppressed in the early church written by and about women. And so she brings a unique perspective to the role of gender in early Christianity. So here is the conclusion of our two-part conversation on the role of women in the first church. What is so interesting is that, you know, this notion of self-care, of course, develops, you know, very early on in the writings of, um, or, you know, in the thought of, of Socrates and so forth. But in Greco-Roman society, early on, self-care was, it was kind of a, almost like a, a luxury for the very elite, you know, who had time to think philosophically. And it's only, and so what Foucault is really masterful at doing is tracing how the development of the notion of self-care evolves over time through the centuries. And so he describes that for roughly a thousand years, from about 500 years before the beginning of the common era to about 500 years afterwards. And and I think, you know, he died prematurely and was really, I, th- I think it would have been very interesting to see how he would how he would finish out um, his tracing of that idea. He, he didn't know, of course, the extra canonical text. They were just coming to light very shortly before he died. And I think that what is so interesting is that we can see the development of this notion into the Greco-Roman philosophical schools, where it gets applied to a greater number of people who are still somewhat elite, but you know, will not necessarily all be the leaders of society. We see that these early followers of Christ are also applying this notion of self-care. So, I mean, the way I often talk to people about it is that in our day and age, we think in terms of having a personality. We think of, in terms of our egos. We think in terms of Freud, right? You don't have to be a psychologist or a specialist in philosophy to think in those terms, broadly speaking, right? We'll talk about how, oh man, we need to tame our ego or whatever, right? And I think in in the ancient times, people were conversant with this, this notion of the care of the self, of, of overcoming one's desires. Indeed, desires are thought of as these uh, almost like bacteria that you have to root out of your system. You know, I mean, I think that would be the analogy, right? And so things like, how do you develop you know, overcoming of fear, overcoming of anger, overcoming of passion. How do you develop self-control? That's specifically very much emphasized in Stoic thinking. And so I think there's this interesting intersection that we see in the New Testament, but we also see it much more fully when we read across the full spectrum of early Christian writings. So, you know, writings like the Apocalypse of Peter, writings, the Gospel of Mary, you know, starts out, all natures, all creatures, all things exist in and with one another. So there's that very beautiful notion of interdependence. And then it goes on to talk about how there's no such thing as sin, per se, but, you know, rather sin is a turning away from the original roots. And it talks about how in the end, all things will be dissolved into their roots, into that original unity, if you will. And so 
I think there are some interesting parallels and contrasts depending on which part of the New Testament that you read or how you read it through these lenses of Augustine and Calvin and so forth. But I think the thing that most Christians have not fully grasped yet is that we have been looking at only a very small slice of early thinking about how to relate to Jesus and the significance of his message. And so that's what I've really tried to lift up. And I, and I think that this notion of the care of the self provides an interesting grounding principle or framework for rethinking our history. Unfortunately, I think Christian history is often told as a series of debates over doctrine in which heresies sort of splinter off from some kind of supposedly original unity. And that's, that's simply a real distortion, right? That we have to start to try to think of, well, how can we retell our Christian history some other way? And I think that thinking about what were the ways of conceiving of the care of the self in those ancient centuries and then hmm. up through the centuries, I think if we do that, it can make for a really interesting transformation of our, our notion of what it means to relate to Jesus in a significant and meaningful way. You know, there's still many, many questions in my mind about issues like suffering, for example. But in terms of history or the exclusivity of Christianity, I was able much more clearly to understand the distortions in Western thinking. But I'd never had these conversations with you. And, and so, I mean, were you already sort of where you are now or were you kind of struggling too? I was in transformation, but it was being in Japan that I must say did it, partly because I recognized that my whole approach, my whole understanding to what Christianity was, just simply does not or did not resonate there. It, it meant it just didn't fit into people's world or their, their meaning system. Right. If you think of in terms of shame, well, Oh, the Bible has a lot to say about shame, but in a traditional theological understanding, that's not even accounted for. And so I began to shift in that way. I have to say also, you mentioned, you know, the, the reading and kind of the limited. I began to use the Scuba University Library as a resource, and there is where I encountered the postmodern thought of Derrida and and various people. And so I began, just because that was what was available, that was really my exposure. And that's when I began, as I began to think this out, that, oh, well, actually, we, in a guilt-based understanding of atonement of Christianity, I began to read the Bible through different eyes and realize, well, no, it's actually, we've got it addressing a problem or predicament that most Japanese are not even, that, that doesn't, you know, they're not functioning on the notion of guilt. It It is a shame, shame orientation. So that was the beginning. Yeah. And I think that Jesus, you know, his culture perhaps resonated more with what we find in Japan than with what we have here. I mean, it's I haven't explored that fully, but I just find it so interesting. And I think, too, for me, a lot of it, Paul, was coming across these amazing individuals and realizing that they didn't have a Christian perspective. I, I simply couldn't believe they were excluded from the grace of God. I, the implication is that if you don't believe in Jesus, you know, as the way, the truth, and the life, that you're going to hell. Because see, my father, you know, my father didn't have the chance to read all these things, but he he believed that somehow it would all be okay. I, I can remember we had this Christian friend that 
we wanted to recommend this woman to him who was not Christian. And he said, I will never date a non-Christian woman. And my father just loved this young Japanese woman, you know. And he said, oh, they just need to, they just need to get to know each other. They'll, somehow they'll just work that all out. You know, it was so funny because it was different than the theology that was taught, right, in our churches and so forth. But he didn't fully know how to, to articulate it at all, but he just had this sense that we didn't have to be limited by our theology, that even if, you know, he knew that Jesus was the way for him, and he, because of all the sickness and illness that he had had and all the struggles that caused for my family, uh. he could understand the love of Christ and the grace of Christ, but he was never, he was not a sin and death and damnation preacher, but well, yeah, that is the implication, but I want to have a theology that doesn't force me into that kind of implication, right? So it is interesting how our contact with other cultures and peoples and ways of thinking forces us to reconsider our own categories. And yet, you know, I find myself, I, as I sense you are, in a place where I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, you know, not to make a stupid pun, but like Christianity, it can be a very liberating tradition but only if we, like, turn it inside out. Absolutely, yeah. While I was there at University of Scuba, I ran into a guy who was a Wittgensteinian philosopher. Really? He's the one analytic philosopher I really like. But anyway, he was translating the diaries that had been found that, in fact, had not been known, and he translated them. And he himself, just a delightful individual, Wow. But he really didn't know anything about Christianity. Reading Wittgenstein's diaries, he, he realized that his journey was a spiritual journey, that he was tracing his own reading of the New Testament, of Kierkegaard, struggling with notions of the miraculous. This is all in diaries that were discovered in somebody's attic. People don't know this, you know, until fairly recently. They haven't understood that Wittgenstein was going through a kind of personal conversion. And his philosophical journey is a reflection then of his engagement with the, the Tolstoy, especially many people knew that, but also with the, the New Testament. And so we began to have conversations. Uh, I knew something about Wittgenstein, but was reading further. And then I was telling him, you know, my understanding of Christianity and when he published the diaries, which, by the way, it's it's a popular, you can pick up his translation in train stations in Japan. People are reading Wittgenstein's diaries. Huh. He uses our conversations as a kind of platform because what he came to recognize, you know, that Wittgenstein, is, his struggle is with himself with his own pride, and he sees his primary journey philosophically and spiritually as overcoming pride, which is a very... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, and that's what's coming out in the diaries. And so through that, through that kind of interaction, I think it broadened both of our understandings of uh, this. So that was a kind of key uh, influence for me is to have the uh, but yeah, just being in being in Japan. Interesting. Oh, that is so. See, I always thought there was more to him. But... Do you know who James McClendon is? McClendon describes he does a lot with Wittgenstein, and he did not have access to these diaries because most they didn't. You know, back in the these diaries, I think it was the '90s that they discover them. But he t describes the trajectory of Wittgenstein's life 
in terms of a kind of Christian conversion that many people rejected. But when the diaries come out, that's there. Wittgenstein just affirms that, you know, that he, he left teaching. Everybody was hailing him as a genius. And, and so in the diaries, he's going, you know, goes to his little cabin in Norway and goes out there and he's praying and uh, try, you know, I, you knew that he encountered Tolstoy's Life of Christ uh, very early. I thought his ideas about language games were really interesting, but I only knew him in that context, nothing about his spiritual journey. Yeah, he was an uh, artillery spotter in World War One, and went into a little village and found Tolstoy's Life of Christ. And the other soldiers just began to refer to him as the, the Tolstoy guy, because he was handing out he bought a bunch of the books and just started handing them out to everybody and decided then that he wanted to pattern his life after Tolstoy's picture of what a Christian would be. Tolstoy said, well, if you're going to do anything worthwhile in the world, probably start with teaching small children. And so Wittgenstein does. He goes up to the you know little school. He gets a teaching license to teach elementary and high school. And as, you know, unfortunately, the, the story is not as romantic from there because he's not very patient <laughs> the kids. He hits one of the children. He has to leave the school. But, yes, yeah, so the teaching didn't work out for him. But, but then, you know, he gives away all. His family was very wealthy, if not the wealthiest family in Austria. And he gives up all his money and tries to live in the fashion that Tolstoy outlined, you know, for in, in his depiction of the life of Christ. So he's always trying to be a follower of Jesus, but doesn't, doesn't want anything to do with institutional Christianity and warns his own students away from that. His life journey, and this is Kikawa's point, and his philosophical understanding have to be read together. That isn't that interesting? But when did you all first go to Japan? Well, we went in 1980. We were down in Kagoshima, where her brother, Faith's brother, is a missionary down there. He's still down there. And so we filled in for them for a year. And then I came back and did a degree in linguistics and finished a Master of Divinity. I did a degree in linguistics at the University of Louisville. And then we got the job there in Scuba with Meikei. And so I taught there you know, a couple of years. I didn't realize that that's how you first came uh -huh. to scuba. It was yeah. working for Mayk yeah. High School. I, for some reason, I thought you were sent out by a denominational board. No, we were always self-supporting. Did you know I started a school there in Tokyo, American Christian College? I don't think I knew very much about it. Yeah, we started a school and when all the American colleges were setting up campuses. I set up a campus in Tokyo. Yes. And, uh, had a connection with the Milligan College here in the States. And so we ran that school for about 15 years. It's been, uh, it's been wonderful having the conversation. I'd, I'd love to, to con continue the conversation because I'm, I feel like I'm learning so much from you because I haven't approached these issues as much from the, the psychological framework. And it's very enriching and interesting <laughs> to talk about them. Debbie, this has been wonderful. I'm glad that we've, uh, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so glad. We've Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. 
please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.